0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Duts Given. We are back after a week off last week. We couldn't really get it organised between the three of us to get a podcast recorded last week. We were all over the world doing different things. And it's not like it was a busy week. It's not like Joe Root stepped down as England captain. Rob Key got put in charge of cricket in England. It's not like it was a busy week or anything to miss. However, the good news for Finney especially is that we're all back together. And Finney, if you could just quickly put into words how delighted you are to, to see Dan and I again.
2: It was actually a real nice touch last week. Not having to have actually converse with you. To have two weeks away from the mundane witterings of the pair of you has been a very very nice relief for my brain and my sanity then it's a fucking tragedy that um we've had to do this this week to be quite honest i feel like that's as nice as i can be about it really that's, that's very um, sweet
1: actually actually getting a little bit choked up here actually norcross uh, we did see each other earlier on last week and an extra bonus podcast will be going out later in the week uh, to make up for lost time, so lovely to see you the other day, Dan, but we'll explain more about that in the bonus podcast going out. but on the flip side, Dan, just just how delighted are you to see to see your friend finney again
0: well I, I barely can see him actually through the thug of of my hangover uh yesterday, I met up with three of my oldest friends for lunch at two o'clock and we left at about ten. Uh, and and I, today has been a really big existential struggle. I mean, look, I'll show you. This is what I'm drinking tonight. I
2: well, thought you were going to get a colostomy bag out and show to-
0: it. <laughs> I, I would have, today is the sort of day for a colostomy bag, actually, <laughs> and a catheter. It has been a very, very tough one. My wife made me go for breakfast this morning in Balham with with my mate who was staying the night. And, and walking for 10 minutes was extremely challenging. I had to clutch hold of a table for the best part of three quarters of an hour, not really touch my poached eggs, come home, try to go, to, try to go back to bed, but realize that, of course, I had workmen tearing apart my spare room and ripping up skirting boards. You know how loud that is? It's extremely loud, extremely loud. And I was, I've was i basically been crying all day, waiting to do this sodding podcast, which I thought was going to be much earlier, but Finney forgot that he was going to be at the Oval. So I, I'm, I'm half dead, and I, I may just go completely silent, but it, it won't be because I'm not trying to be engaged, it's because I'm struggling actually just to stay awake. I'll remind
1: you of that sentence. I may go completely silent when 15 minutes from now you're telling us a fucking
0: boring story about a bloke who played cricket in 1928. I'll just oh, remind well, you of that. actually, I did hear a brilliant story about a guy called Mandy Mitchell-Innis on a podcast I did with Adam Collins the other day. It turned out that he turned down the opportunity to play for England because he was worried that his hay fever would mean he'd drop a catch off Hedley Verity. <laughs> See?
1: There you go. And, and yet he promised us he was going to stay silent. I should also point out to people <laughs> listening that when Norcross said, I'll show you what I'm drinking, he held up a glass of water. It always staggers me that Daniel Norcross works in radio for a living and completely forgets that
0: people listening can't see what he's doing on Zoom. Oh, yes, that's true. Sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, Anyway, for the <laughs> well, record, I had a commentator. I've got a commentator in the bloody room, haven't I? I thought, Stephen Finn's a fully-fledged, ball-by-ball commentator now. Clearly, he's supposed to describe these things. Okay, the crusty old man sat on his sofa. He's currently
2: clutching his microphone with two hands because one hand is too frail to hold the microphone up by itself as he tentatively reaches over to a glass of water and shakily lifts it to his mouth and sups a few sups of cool, beautiful, creamy water. Creamy? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, water can be creamy when you're thirsty. I find water creamy. This is fun. I like this. Just describing D- Daniel Norcross. He reaches to his left hip, slowly tickles his arm to try and feel the sensation of human touch that he hasn't ever felt for quite a while. <laughs> He, he lifts
1: the microphone to his sad, pathetic mouth and laughs. <laughs>
2: I mean,
0: all, all of that was very accurate, apart from the fact that I'm actually lying in my bed.
1: Uh, now, Finney, whilst you're giving Daniel Norcross jit for, for being an old man, uh, you were telling us before we started recording all about your, your disgusting, horrible knee. Talk me through this process. What's going on?
2: Oh, it's not it's not that disgusting or horrible. It's just the I mean if you bowled anything above 67 miles an hour, you might fucking know what bowling properly feels like, but instead you probably wake up on a Saturday with no stiffness whatsoever because what comes out of your hand is truly pathetic. But when you're a proper fast bowler and your bones and your feet hit the floor as hard as they do, you can get the old bit of swelling. And I had a bit of bone bruising on my knee that has caused some swelling in my knee. So I had my knee drained and injected with a lubricant which should have me back on the field in no time whatsoever. So looking forward to a positive outcome from it. Talk me through the, the knee
1: draining process because I've heard of this before. Um The footballer, Jason Dodd, who's a lovely chap who plays lots of Lord's Tavern stuff. He's always getting his knees trained from a year as a professional footballer. So how does it all work?
2: Well, you go in there and they find the spot on your knee where the fluid is and it's guided in by an ultrasound scanner. So you've got the ultrasound in one hand i don't the doctor does and the needle in the other they put some local anesthetic in and then they buff the needle into the capsule underneath your kneecap and just drain the fluid out of your knee and then they leave the needle in there whilst they take the syringe off and then they put the syringe on with the lubricant or the cortisone whatever you're having in there and they inject it there along the joint line so yeah it's a a pleasant experience and nice when you get to sit there and watch it all as well.
0: how much of it was there and what does it look there like? There was this? only
2: this was a small draining. There was only eight millimeters, milliliters, sorry, of um of fluid. I've had it done before when there's been twenty-five milliliters of fluid Ooh. and that was um uh, that was significant, but that would have been three or four years ago. That's half the um, amount of sun cream you're allowed to take on a plane, to put that in perspective. <laughs> yeah. There you go. (laughs) But yeah, eight millilitres this week. So it wasn't anything significant, just a bit more, it was more annoying than anything else. So hoping to be back very soon. Was it that rock solid pitch at Derbyshire that did it, do you reckon? Um, I'd say it might be two times that I've been part of a bowling attack this year. We've conceded 500 runs or more, which means that you're spending a considerable amount of time on your feet. So there's, there's a chance that it could have been that. But, yeah, it's part and parcel of being a fast bowler, unfortunately. And, and yeah, sometimes you just have to accept that um, that you need to have a week off and then hopefully come back better for it.
0: We we haven't discussed Derby yet, have we? Because um, I I thought it would be a fairly horrible experience. But, actually, the way the game went, you kind of got away with it, didn't you? Because you only had to like, be on the pitch for about a day and a half. And then after oh, that, beautiful. You, you toddled on got out in no time, toddled back to the pavilion and presumably just sat there for two days doing jack shit.
2: Yeah, went to, there was a, because Derby, it's not quite like Brighton or London where you can leave the ground and within around 100 metres you've got a nice coffee shop to have a flat white or, or something, oh no. you know, something those um, us snobby Londoners do enjoy. But yeah, Derby, the, the only stuff in the vicinity of the ground at Derby is a days in hotel a Texaco petrol station and an industrial estate that has loads of car garages on it. So the only option to find a coffee was the, uh, the ready-made Costa Express at the Texaco petrol station. So, so every now and then I'm three coffees a day at the moment. And so three times a day, I'd pop off to the Texaco, which is around a 10 minute walk, get an instant coffee or get a flat white out of the machine, at the Texaco and walk back. So, yeah, it was a, a lovely few days
0: watching the boys bat. I had one of the most restorative packets of cheese and uh, pickled onion flavour monster munches from that Texaco garage about five mm. years ago. Yeah, never forgotten it. And
2: it's weirdly
1: uplifting.
0: <laughs> it can be. That's a
1: lovely advert for Texaco. Uh, now, actually, mentioning the Derbyshire pitch, I did want to ask you about this, Finney, because I think it was actually after we finished recording, but are the groundsmen at the moment in county cricket trying to... Restore their reputation after England got battered down in Australia and in Sri Lanka, uh, sorry, in India as well. And everybody was blaming county wickets and Darren Stevens and Tim Murta and the likes for taking wickets on green tops, bowling 70 miles an hour. And everybody was laying into the state of the county game. And it feels like the groundsmen have taken this very personally. And there's a lot of very flat, hard pitches around the county
2: seen at the start of this season. Have you noticed that? Look at the amount of hundreds and double hundreds that have been scored. There's been an incredible amount of double hundreds already scored this summer. Three of them in the game that I played in in Derby. Thankfully, two of them for my team. (laughs) But then Shah Massoud has gone back-to-back double hundreds. The Pakistani opening batter has gone double hundred against us. Double hundred in the next game. And the game before that, he scored 94 and 60 or something ridiculous. So he's doing something right at the moment but yeah there's certainly an element of it having been a very dry March I think I think March and the beginning of April has been very dry albeit a little bit cold and I think that that's meant that the groundsmen have had time to be able to prepare the pitches I'm not actually sure that it's ever the fact that the groundsmen are incapable of making good pitches I think that the the way that the schedule is set up means that Their time between games to be able to produce proper pitches is almost impossible because they can't get the time on it that they need. Whereas this year, especially at the beginning of a season, if you have a dry March where they can work on it through March and then the games in early April do come around and the weather's good, then then it is possible to produce good pitches, which I think is good for English cricket because you've got test-style bowlers, the guys who are going to go and do well in test matches, they're the ones taking wickets and they're the ones who are going to be able to play in the county season. Like I look at Tom Helm from Middlesex, who, in my opinion, is a test match bowler, test match style bowler. He's not played much in the last few years. He's played every game so far this year and done very well. Matt Parkinson, after being outspoken about the the pitches and the opportunity for spinners in England, is taking wickets up at Lancashire. And I think that that can only bode well for English cricket. Yeah, you've mentioned a couple of names there that I wanted to touch on and Masood and Parkinson.
1: Um Parkinson in particular, Daniel Norcross and I, when we did meet up the other day, we were waxing lyrical about Parkinson because his control for a leg spinner is unbelievable. If you look at his economy rate that he bowls with and are not the most helpful pitches at the moment, what has that man got to do to get a test call up? And it's not because I'm desperate to see Jack Leach out the side. Everybody loves Jack Leach. I love Jack Leach, but it's so English to have still not given Parkinson one test match in his life it's um, it's the yeah. most we're afraid of sexy selection it feels sometimes like in England do you deserve uh, he deserves to play a test match
2: Oh, I think he deserves to play a test match yeah because he's an attacking spinner but I do think that leg spin is somewhat of a luxury in England I think if you're going to play two spinners I think they missed the trick not playing him in the West Indies I think that that was foolish on England's part not to play him at all in the West Indies because I think he could have been a wicket taker over there but i suppose traditionally in england we've never had a leg spinner who is played as the sole spinner in english conditions i'm not sure we've ever had that and i'm not saying that there's that's the reason why matt parkinson can't buck the trend but certainly as an introduction into test match cricket you'd imagine somewhere like the West Indies where it is dry and you're going to play two spinners is a way to introduce someone to test cricket as opposed to just sling them in as a leggy in the in the early May test match at Lords, when there might be grass on the wicket. That doesn't quite seem
0: fair. He's, he's part of a brilliant attack at Lancashire as well, though, isn't he? So it, it, if he's a luxury, it's a sort of attack that can afford that luxury. He's so got Hassan Ali, James Anderson and Saki Mahmoud knocking about, as well as, you know, Tom Bailey's there as well. There's plenty of mm. plenty of really good bowlers at Lancashire. So putting him in the side doesn't really feel, you know, quite as perilous.
2: Well, I do think that had Moen Ali still been open to playing test match cricket, I think that Parkinson almost certainly would play the test matches in the summer because yeah. Moeen, as an off spinner who has pretty good control, can play that type of role as a number six or seven batter. And that allows Parkinson, as a leg spinner, the freedom to be able to attack and try and take wickets from the other end, which for me is the job of a leg spinner and would suit him perfectly. The fact that there's not an all-rounder who can bowl that quality of off-spin, I think probably hinders him at the moment in English conditions. I get that an ordinary leg spinner would be a bit of a luxury, but I've touched on this before.
1: His economy rate is unbelievable in first-class cricket. He goes at 2.7, and this season I think it's below that as well. And Norcross, again, I don't know why I'm teeing you up for a boring story of old cricketers, but you were telling me about a famous leg spinner from years gone by and how basically the English electors see leg spinners witchcraft and they're terrified of it and they never end up picking any leg spinners at all.
0: Yep, Titch Freeman in the 1920s, 20s and 30s. He's the second leading wicket taker of all time took over 3,000 first-class wickets. <laughs> he played about 14 test matches. He took about 60 wickets at an average of about 24. But he wasn't deemed good enough <laughs> because he was a leggy. Everyone's very suspicious of leggies. And then what happens is that after about 50 years, some bright spark goes, we haven't really tried a leggy. Why don't we, who's this Ian Salisbury chap? Let's, let's give him a go. Or um, what was the name of yeah, Chris Schofield? So suddenly they sort of like they come back into vogue, and then we get so traumatized by the experiences that they undergo that we forget about leggies all over again. Meanwhile, you know Afghanistan's leading spinner is Rashid Khan. They play him as the only spinner wherever they play. You know, I mean he's he's not a very hard turning leggy, isn't Rashid Khan? Probably bowls a bit, you know, quicker as well than Matt Parkinson. But other countries are able to countenance this voodoo. And consider it to be acceptable within the confines of a cricket team, but in England, we just we don't like it. And, and Fiddy's, I think, very cogently explained the reasons. But I mean, I wonder if Matt Parkinson bowled a little bit quicker, and you are seeing, especially in the IPL, quite a lot of wrist spinners tending to bowl around about the ninety to ninety-five kilometer an hour mark. If he bowled that little bit quicker, might that make a difference? I don't know.
1: Potentially. Potentially. I just want to see him play a test match. I can't believe he's 25. And also we've been, we've been, but also we've been losing test series there with unassailable leads. We might as well have chucked him into one of these many test series where we physically can't win the test series going into the final test match of the series. Uh, But before we go too heavy on Matt Parkinson, because I'm sure we'll talk about it plenty more the season goes on a couple of other names I want to throw at people. Um, The English Masood, Mr. Ben Compton, which is a wonderful story. Playing for Wimbledon, just one division above me, to put that in perspective. Playing for Wimbledon a few <laughs> years ago, now averaging 61.6 in the first class game. He's got five centuries to his name already in his very, very short career. Finney, where the hell has he come from? And do you think that it's it's getting rarer and rare for these players to slip through the net? I feel like most you know good players that are going to play at a very high standard are snapped up by academies from the age of about... Twelve, thirteen 13 nowadays. Where the hell does Ben Compton come from? That's a good question.
2: I, it's, I don't know. I, I think there is definitely... Room you don't have to sound for, so surprised. At what?
1: Uh, me asking a good question.
2: No, it's not that good a question, is it? Because the bloke's obviously <laughs> fucking... He's been playing league cricket for the last couple of years. That's where he fucking came from. Where else do you think he's come from? He's thrown on a tree. <laughs> and then just dropped into first-class cricket as if he's never fucking met anyone before in his life. He's not an alien. He's been somewhere. We know where he's been. You described it, and now you're asking me where he's come from. What what sort of fucking question is that? It's oh,
0: not. I could see that question. coming a mile off, Toby. What 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 were you doing? I, he was <laughs> he was just
1: about to answer seriously. I don't know why I interrupted. And now look where we are. <laughs> look what we've become. <laughs> 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 uh, but genuinely, funny, of a podcast. It is a, Of course, it's a shambles. That's the beauty of zero dots given. But genuinely. How the hell does that happen? A guy come from nowhere having not played at all and then suddenly at the age of 25 bursts onto the scene and, and become an absolute run machine. This, how on earth does that happen?
2: Well, as far as I understand it, he, he was on contract with Nottinghamshire last year, wasn't he? And before that, he'd trialled at a number of counties. And I just think sometimes you come of age as a batter. I think that as a bowler, it's harder to stick through the net because you either look as though you can bowl with a good, strong action or you don't. And no matter of what you what your results are, if you can watch a good bowler and um and I think see what a good bowler is and, and what they're going to become. Whereas for a batter to slip through the net it's probably a little bit easier because everyone's got their own strange technique and the way you accumulate runs doesn't necessarily have to be in a conventional manner. From what I've seen of Compton, he's got a slightly different stance, the way he stands, with his feet very side on to the bowler um, with his front toe open and like leant over his front leg quite considerably. So it does look slightly odd when he's batting, but it works for him. And and that's probably how I think batters probably slipped
0: through the net more than bowlers. Well, there's been Nick Brown as another example of one who's done a little bit of that sort of thing at Essex, an opening bat as, as well. And on Ben Compton, amidst all of this, We've got to remember he he batted for longer in a counter championship match than anyone has in the recorded history of the game. He didn't bat quite as many balls, we think, as someone else might have done, but we don't have ball by ball record going all the way back to eighteen eighty odd. But we do have a minutes record, and he and he smashed the minutes record. He was about to become only the sixth person to carry his bat in both innings of a of a, a first class match. Only the third one to score centuries in both innings, I think. And the dismissal. Have you seen the umpiring decision to get him out?
2: Yeah, he got sawn off by the umpire, Absolute didn't he?
0: Absolute shocker. Absolute yeah. shocker. I'm furious. I mean, you know, if you're going to saw somebody off, saw off the number 11 so that at least I get my record. It's so yeah, annoying. It's
2: happened to me many times that. Well, I saw sawn off as a number 11, left stranded some umpire wants to go and play golf the next day. He just gives you out. There have been a couple of howlers this week, actually, from the umpires. Did you see the Jordan Cox dismissal?
0: Yes. Shocker. Was that supposed to be LBW?
2: No, no, no. It's caught. Short leg.
0: Well, because I, I, it was so far away from the hand, the bat or the hands, I yeah. thought, was he actually giving it LBW instead?
2: Yeah. The only, well, the way I have to describe it for the listeners, but Jordan Cox is batting on off stump. He's... Bowler's bowled a ball miles outside off stump. He's padded up to it and turned his back on it. And it's hit his pad. And it's like gone up towards his back, I think, hit his back and then bounced towards the short leg fielder. And the umpire's just given it out. And Cox, for his troubles, has probably got himself three points from the ECB for that, for descent. But it was an absolute howler. The only time that the ball could have hit the bat is because his bat's over his right shoulder as he turns his body the only time the ball could have feasibly hit the bat is as his body's turning and the ball's coming up his back, but I just can't see it happening. I'm no, looking was, at the replay was, was now and that is disastrous.
1: an absolute shocker. <laughs> I actually think he deals with it pretty well, considering how bad the decision was. One final name before we move on from the County Championship that I want to chuck at you, Finney in particular, uh, and he's actually a mutual friend of ours is Toby Roland Jones. So nice to see Toby Roland Jones back on a cricket pitch and also, performing very, very well. Runs and wickets for Toby. He's had a tough few years with injuries and obviously really cruel timing of injuries when he was just performing so well for England. But how nice it to see your former Middlesex teammate contributing on a cricket pitch once again and winning games for Middlesex?
2: First and foremost, yes, as a friend of mine, I love, great to see him out there playing cricket and enjoying it and doing well because because that's what I want my friends to do. But also he's probably one of the most influential people that I've ever played cricket with so like his ability to influence games and games in any position to be able to either save the game or or win the game from an improbable position he's one of the best players that I've ever played with for being able to do that with both bat and ball and that's probably and that is testament to to him and, and the skill that he's got that that I can say that having played a decent amount of cricket with people so yeah, it's it's great seeing him back in the wickets. If he could do it this week against Leicester and then calm down the week after against Sussex at Hove, I'd appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but but I wish him the best of luck in every game that he plays apart from against Sussex, naturally.
0: Um, now I'm not gonna let you move on from the county I'm not gonna let you move on from the county championship just yet, though. Because well, we've got to talk about Surrey. Well you've got to talk about who's top of the league. and, and who that? is top of the league. Who cares? We played
2: more games. We played more games than everyone else. Of course, you top the league.
0: Not, not more games than everybody else. More games than Lancashire and Yorkshire. Played three, one, two, beat beat, two wins on a bounce. A fantastic, hard-fought one against Somerset. Somerset side storming back into form with Tom Abel getting that unbeaten 150. Showed great ticker. Lost a bowler, Matt Taylor, in second just as they did against Warwickshire. They lost Kemal Rach not Warwickshire, Hampshire. Lost Kemar Roach and still found the resilience. I tell you, Surrey—they are the team to watch. Oh God, he's going to be unbearable. I like, will be. I really yeah. will be if it right, happens. We'll, I will we'll be come back to today.
1: Surrey in a few weeks when everyone's actually had a chance to play some matches. Dan, all right. Uh, <laughs> let's move on from the red ball to the white ball and talk about Josh Butler's ridiculous, ridiculous form in the IPL at the moment. I mean, just when you think Josh Butler cannot get any better than he is already. He just looks imperious at the moment. So if you've been living under a rock and you haven't seen what Joss Butler has been up to, he has smashed another hundred for the Rajasthan Royals in the IPL. So put that in perspective, it's his fifth century in 2020 cricket in the last 12 months. It's his third of the IPL. It's, his, it's the fourth of the last six hundreds in the IPL have been scored by Joss Butler and Virat Kohli has the IPL record of 973 runs in a single IPL campaign. Well, just seven games in, Joss Butler is already well over halfway to that record. Stephen Finn, the big question I'm going to ask you is, is Joss Butler the greatest white ball batsman of all time? Oh,
2: It's a, That's a big call, naturally. And I'm going to be biased because he's one of my best mates. And I was an usher at his wedding, so... He might um, he might turf me out of his friendship circle if I say no. No, look, I, I think that he is definitely up there. I mean, look at what he's doing and the way he's able to influence games. It's ridiculous, really. And the games that he's won England from improbable positions, like that partnership he had, was it against Australia where him and Jake Ball, I think back in number 11, chased a stupid amount of runs to win the game and, and just marshaled it home perfectly. But I think even Joss would say that A.B. de Villiers might just top him at the moment but if Joss were to continue on the trajectory that he is then there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't be but the form that he's in at the moment he's probably must be having the greatest IPL season anyone's ever had and we're only halfway through.
0: Well Virat Cody holds the record with four IPL hundreds in a single tournament he's got three already with a further seven qualification games and Rajasthan going quite well as well so he might get some postseason games in there as well um, what I'm quite intrigued by, though, is i talked to Laurie Evans about this on commentary the other day. And he counterintuitively thinks that Butler is batting in the wrong position because despite scoring all these runs, he's, he's, his view is that he can do something that very few people can do, which is come in at four or five as, as the game dictates and tee off immediately. And he tends to think that there are plenty of people who can about the top of the order, especially for England. You think of you know, like Jason Roy, Johnny Bairstow, can all open the batting. I really don't know what to think about that because it seems kind of strange to be watching somebody in the form of his life and then thinking, well, actually, I'd rather he faced fewer balls. Doesn't uh, there is a logic to it, but I'm not sure if I agree with it. There was a discussion on the IPL actually.
1: I've heard it a few times this week about we obsess over these unbelievable hundreds and they are unbelievable. Don't get me wrong, but how important is a cameo and how good is Liam Livingston, for example, at coming in and facing 12 balls, but making a 25, 26 runs at the end of the innings, which in many ways is just as important as bizarre as it sounds in 2020 as a hundred. So I get there's some logic in that. However, on this occasion, I'm going to say that Laurie Evans is, is, talking out of his ass, because I would say that Josh Butler scores that 100 very, very quickly as well. It would be different if it was a guy who was soaking up, you know, 85 deliveries for his 100. But this guy is going berserk. No team's going to complain that Josh Butler's coming in and scoring 100 at that rate.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, absolutely. And also, just purely from the point of view of what, what makes me excited by T20 cricket, it's watching the very best batter's bat for the longest amount of time. And if I'm sat there, drumming my fingers, waiting for Josh Butler to come in, that just seems to me to be depriving the public of the opportunity to see him bat for as long as possible.
1: Yeah, it was like that today in the game in the IPR, I should point out for people listening, we were recording on Monday, but between uh, Punjab and Chennai, that I was sat there watching a very, very good partnership developing uh, for the Punjab Kings, but watching Liam Livingstone sitting in the hutch. And before I know it, it's the 16th over. And he's still not come out to bat. And I was going, at some point, this is now actually just boring. And I just want to see Liam Livingston come in and, and whack it into next week. Uh, anyway, yeah, Josh Butler, unbelievable. I, I think the only person ahead of him is A.B. de Villiers, in my humble opinion. But pff, it's not a bad person to be second on the list to, is it? I mean, Josh Butler is just an absolute freak. And it's so nice that he's English. It's It feels like the sort of cricketer we wouldn't dreamed of having about 10 years ago. So the fact that he's ours makes it all the more special. Um, Now, speaking of English cricket and, you know, the state of English cricket and who knows where we'll be in 10 years' time. But as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, some huge news stories have taken place over the last couple of weeks. And let's start with the appointment of Rob Key. Uh, Rob Key is now in charge of English cricket. He's a brave man for taking on that role because (laughs) English cricket, let's be honest, is a bit of a shit show at the moment. Finney, the first thing he's got to do is find a coach and there's lots of talks that the job is going to be split in two. First of all having played in English dressing rooms and always under a coach that did red and white ball what do you think of the notion of a coach for for each format well for red and white ball cricket
2: I think it's necessary I think that it's, it's just to get a high quality big name coach I think you have to split them up so that you're not asking them to commit so much time on the road to Being away the entire time, I think that it probably provides more longevity in the role for someone to be able to make the team their own over a longer period of time, if it all works out by splitting the roles. And also, I I don't really see an English coach at the moment who is made or who is ready for that test match role. But I do see the one day team as a good opportunity to give an English coach the chance to coach at international level and to help them develop because the one-day team sort of looks after itself with Morgan and Butler there, having been there for so long and setting the culture of the team, et cetera. I think that that doesn't need as much looking after. Um, So it'll be a nice way for an English coach to get that opportunity and then hopefully progress onto the Test match role at some stage. So yeah, certainly the splitting of the roles does seem like the logical thing to do. And I'd be very surprised if that doesn't happen.
1: Yeah, especially with the calendars nowadays that these guys are playing, it seems almost the fair thing to do. And also, you know, I've, I think that at times the coaches have looked jaded over the last few years. The last few coaches, we saw Trevor Bayliss towards the end of his time as England coach sort of split the role up a little bit. Chris Silverwood at times, you just thought, oh, I bet he just wants to go home for this series, this white ball series, and put his feet up and focus on the next test match test match news ahead. Norcross, it seems inevitable, doesn't it? This splitting up of the roles.
0: Yeah. Oh, quite definitely. I mean, I, part of the reason that I think people were looking jaded also is because England have had the most punishingly cruel schedule of any country. Uh, maybe only Indian cricketers because of having to fit in two IPLs have been in bubbles for as long or occasionally longer and trying to put a coach under that kind of strain and, and putting teams under that kind of strain has really taken a massive toll on, on a lot of the players. You've seen it, you've seen it with injuries, you've seen it with people looking jaded. I mean, Josh Butler looked quite jaded at the end of the ashes and, it, it doesn't normally look jaded, you know. Uh, it's it that's got to change, I think, especially with the amount of cricket we play. And also, let's not forget. I mean, it seems startling to believe it, but England are going to be defending their world title in a year's time. The, the next World Cup's in twenty twenty three. There's a T twenty World Cup again in October November in Australia of this year. So the focus is going to shift. Onto white ball cricket once again. So they're going to have to play a lot more 50 over cricket to be up for that World Cup when it comes round. On the subject of Key, I think there's a few things I've seen on Twitter. Lots of people were quite disappointed. They go, what experience has he got for the role of you know, managing director of English cricket? Well, like, what experience does anyone ever have for that role? You, you either do it or you don't do it. It's, it's a unique post. What he does have is a vast amount of knowledge of the county game and of players. He's watched an enormous amount of cricket in his capacity as a Sky commentator. Um, he's still really closely involved in the county game. By all accounts, he was very much hands-on as captain at uh, Kent and you know used to attend committee meetings and knows exactly how all that kind of administrative malarkey goes down. So I think in terms of who you're going to pick to do that or, or employ to do that, he's as good an appointment as any that England could have, but I was interviewing Lawrence Booth the other day because Wisdom Cricket's Almanac came out, and Lawrence is the editor, and so I read his editor's notes, and they are stark. It's ten pages of, of horrible reading. It just basically outlines the gaps in personnel, uh, the, the vacuum at the heart of power, the really tawdry way, in fact, in which This bonus pool has been supposedly touted as going to be, you know, handed out 2.1 million pounds of bonuses to the execs, most of whom appear to be leaving. (laughs) So, then taking the money with them, it's a really difficult time for anybody to come in and do that job. There isn't a chair, there's every chance there won't be a CEO in a few months' time. There isn't a coach, and there isn't a captain. (laughs) So, you couldn't really arrive at this in a more challenging period so what i would urge people to do is not expect rob key to transform the fortunes of the england men's test team in like you know like that because he doesn't have the tools to do it in combination of players coaches captains the lot it's just not there to do so you know it's going to be a challenging role and we need to give him some time we must be patient
1: i completely agree i mean if anything that's makes me even more delighted that Rob Key's taken the role because I think he knows the challenges facing English cricket at the moment. Let's be honest, it's a shambles at the minute on and off the pitch. And he would have known that. And the fact that he's willing to give up his very, very comfortable, very cushy career that he's got going in the media to try and be the man to take English cricket forward, I think speaks volumes about him. And as you say, I mean, scored nearly 20,000 first class runs. Captain Kent for many years has experienced the highs and lows of being a test match cricketer, scored that amazing double hundred against the West Indies, also struggled in other test series as well. He's been there and done it. He knows the English game. So on paper, I've never met the bloke, but he seems he speaks very intelligently and eloquently on the TV whenever I see him. And, um, and good luck to him. And, and fingers crossed, because, yeah, rather him than me, I have to admit. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time. Let's go through some of the names being talked about to be the next coach of the England team, be it Red Bull or White ball. because one of the first names that keeps popping up at the moment, Finney, is your former coach in the 100, Mr Simon Katic. How did you find working under Simon Katic? I mean, obviously, he didn't help your bowling at all. But other than that, how was he?
2: Uh, he no, I think he's very good. I, I enjoyed the manner that he had around the team, the relaxed environment, but also the demand for excellence in what you did, which... Before you say it, I didn't do. That's why I get retained. So, uh, yeah, he he demands high standards and has a very good cricket brain from what we chatted about. And I thought that he set a really good environment that the Manchester team and the sort of environment that I think would thrive in international cricket. And I think that that experience and having played in that great Australian team is the sort of thing that could be really good for English cricket. Yeah,
1: and good knowledge of the the county championship as well. And uh, other names on the list... Graham Ford, Gary Kirsten, Paul Collingwood, of course, Justin Langer, Stephen Fleming. Are there any names that jump out at you on that list, Daniel Norcross? Have you got a wish list?
0: Well, I don't really have a wish list because obviously never having been coached by any of them, it's very hard for me to pass (laughs) judgment on them. And they're all of them successful coaches in their own right. I sort of wanted a kind of Malcolm Tucker-style character to come in, you know, and just like hurl Scottish expletives left, right, and centre. But I think the most likely appointment might be Graham Ford because he knows Rob Key very well. They go back quite a long way. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's if if he gets installed as test coach. I think Matt Roller wrote about it actually in Crick Info earlier this week. So that wouldn't that wouldn't be a great surprise. Justin Langer, Ricky Ponting. It seems a bit strange the idea of these kind of these people are sort of antithetical to English cricket, aren't they? They're kind of like the enemy coming in and and being the coach, but actually that's quite, it's not not such a bad place to be in, is it as well? And I think they would bring a very different culture from the one that's come before. What you tend to notice with England coaches is that you get a style of coach. And then the next coach has a completely different style, almost like the opposite seems to happen quite a lot when England choose coaches. So, you know, that's, that's a distinct possibility, but I think Ford for my money, looks the more likely appointment at the moment.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And uh, and I still would like to see Collingwood, maybe, Finney mentioned, taking the white ball team and sort of grooming him as a future England coach as well. Because I love Collie and I felt like the West Indies was a pretty thankless task for him to take over. But I think the one-day team in the 2020 side would be a great Way for him to cut his teeth because as Finney says, basically Owen Morgan runs that side. Let's be honest. It's a pretty cushy job. I reckon I'd have half a chance of managing that England white ball team at the moment. Not you, uh, mate. I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty fucking good at international cricket captain on my laptop. I'll tell you that much. I've got mm. all sorts on there. Mm. Um, now, very finally, because I don't want to do too long in it because we missed last week's podcast. We were all very busy. Um, so every other podcast and everyone with an opinion and everyone on Twitter has had has spoken about Joe Root's captaincy already and it feels like already in a very fast moving world that it was a lifetime ago that Joe Root announced stepping down as captain but I do want to touch on it very very quickly Um, I think the general consensus is kind of the same that Joe Root couldn't have done too much more as captain Um, at the end of the day people talk about declarations and field settings and yada 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 but you're only really as good as your side in many ways as a cricket captain. And he can't turn that bowling attack in the West Indies of Overton, Wokes, Fisher into the fearsome West Indies attack of of yesteryear. And he can't stop opening batsmen, wafting outside off stump every few deliveries as well. He had the most test as captain, which of course meant he had the most wins as England captain and the most losses as England captain, which just about sums up his reign. And he had to deal with the COVID bubbles and the madness of the last few years. The one thing that everybody agreed on was that he's carried himself beautifully. He is an absolute asset to the game of cricket. Um, he's exactly the sort of champion of the sport that you want to be England captain. 5,295 runs as Skipper as well. Fifth on the all-time list behind only Graham Smith, Alan Border, Ricky Ponting and Virat Kohli as well. Finney, when it's all said and done, when the dust has settled, how will Joe Root be remembered as England captain, do you think?
2: Well, I think that he won some important series over the course of his captaincy, beating India, beating South Africa away, especially I think was a fantastic effort. I think the one thing that can't be disputed and and is testament to his ability is the fact that usually a captaincy ends in a bad run of form and a captain almost at his wits end and not being able to concentrate on his own game. Joe Root's standards as a batter through the entirety of his captaincy, have remained second to none, really. There might have been a minor blip in there at some stage, but but all in all, if you look at the numbers, it's uh, phenomenal, really, how high he's kept his numbers up as a batter, trying to lead from the front. Um, and I think that that was his style of leadership. Was a I, I wouldn't expect any of my teammates to do anything that I'm not doing myself. And I think that that was his way of leading the troops. Yeah, look, there'll be tactical decisions and selections along the way that maybe he had a part in that That will be, you know, that people look back on and say he could have done better. But I think all in all, you're right. The the cards that he was dealt with COVID, with the importance of white ball cricket, I think he, he did a pretty good job all in all. And a view from the press box, Daniel Norcross of the last few years of Joe Root
1: as captain of England.
0: Well, I think the press box is fairly united in, in thinking that his captaincy didn't improve on the field. But I think, that what, what's that all about, really? It's about the players you've got with you. And the run of results that England have had have been a combination of things. It's been about players not being informed. It's about players being injured, um, not having access to his best bowlers, which has been key. Bowlers failing to take the ninth and tenth wickets. Now, is that the captain's fault? Yeah, you probably could argue that it was at Lords last year when, you know, he sanctioned a bumper barrage at Jasprit at Bumrah and England really just needed to take that tenth wicket. But these things can happen, can't they? They they do. Um, I don't really know actually if his captaincy was improving or or was just staying where it was or what kind of errors of judgment he was making because out on the field at the time he's going to know best about his players and his bowlers and how to how to to deploy them most of the time um the disappointment is that he did actually seem like he was taking the side somewhere just before they went into an incredible slump so having won a couple of test matches in Sri Lanka and then won the first test against India in Chennai that then started sort of kick-started a kind of free fall which was slightly I think out of his control it was the because we were in those bubbles there was no consistent selection policy. There was this requirement to rest people the whole time. So he was seldom picking the exact 11 that he actually wanted, which is pretty tricky if you're captain. And as Finney alluded to as well, uh, when he first became captain, all eyes were on the World Cup in England in 2019. So an awful lot of, of the selections were, were done kind of with that in mind to make sure that players were peaking for the 2019 White Ball World Cup. I think the problem is that having, you know, Joe Root having resigned, there is no single person who might take over that you couldn't make a case for saying shouldn't be captain. Either because they're not in England's best 11, or they're a bowler that doesn't look like they're going to be able to play seven matches in a row, or they're they're an all-rounder who currently does everything, and so you're saddling the captaincy on somebody who's already got a vast amount of uh, responsibility within the team, or a complete bolter that's not played at all. I mean, I've seen people talk about likes of Sam Billings and whatnot. You know, I think someone even, even suggested Ben Folkes, which was seemed fairly extraordinary. So, you know, I mean, the, the problem the English cricket finds itself in is that the one person that they would have loved to have been a successful captain and to have kept going would be your number three or four batter who's guaranteed his place in the side. And instead, whoever they select, there's a very good reason why they shouldn't be captain,
1: (laughs) which isn't a great place to be in, is it? (laughs) Well, it's a cheery end to this week's podcast as ever. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Norcross. Uh, Chaps, that is all we've got time for. But yes, I'm sure over the next few weeks, we'll be discussing at length who on earth is going to take English cricket forward on the field as well as off the field. There's plenty of roles that still need to be filled. Um, Yeah, keep an eye out for an extra bonus podcast this week as well. Daniel and I went to a wonderful charity event uh, a few days ago and we took a microphone with us and we'll be putting out some footage of our wonderful, extraordinary batting on social media channels <laughs> at Zero Ducks Pod on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> and stuff over the next few days as well. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you very much for listening. Finney Daniel, I'll see you next week. Finney, now that your knees all drained and sexy again, are you gonna play this week? I
2: am keeping my fingers crossed. I'm seeing doctors and the physio tomorrow at training for the first time. In a couple of days, but yeah, I'm desperate to play, but we'll see how it goes in the next couple of days.
1: Fingers crossed, Vinny, I'll be keeping an eye out for the Sussex side when it gets announced. See you next week, chaps. Have a good one. Cheers.
0: Cheers. <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network.